Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On October 18, 1931, the train platform at Phoenix's Union Station was nearly empty, save for a young woman sitting at the far end of the lobby. A stack of carefully arranged luggage sat at her feet. She was wearing a simple brown suit, and although her outfit was unassuming, she was anything but. Her hat shaded the face of a silent film starlet. High cheekbones and deep, expressive eyes, eyes that, in that moment, were wide with fear. The porters had watched the pretty woman for some time, not just because she was attractive, but because she was a bit strange. She'd arrived nearly three hours early for her trip on the last train to Los Angeles. At 7.55 p.m., the Golden State Limited pulled into the station and the porters raced to help her with her luggage. She watched as the baggage boy struggled to heave her two heavy steamer trunks onto the train car. A porter then escorted the woman on board, helping her with her carry-on pieces. Though the trip to L.A. was an overnight ride, she took her seat in the back of the chair car. That's when the porter realized she couldn't afford a sleeper and probably not much of a tip either. There you are, miss. I'm so sorry. I've only got a few cents. No problem, ma'am. Would you like me to bring that bag to the back? No. Uh, No. Thank you. Very well. Have a nice trip. The porter brushed off her odd response with the tip of his hat and left the strange woman to gaze out the window. As he hopped off the car and the train pulled away from the station, he noticed something wet on his right hand. In a hurry, he wiped the rust-colored stain on his trousers and rushed off to the next train. Two days later, as he read the papers, he realized that the red stain was human blood. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free, exclusively on Spotify. To stream Solve Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Solve Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Agnes Leroy and Hedvig Samuelson, two best friends and roommates who were brutally murdered in Phoenix, Arizona in 1931. In today's episode, we'll step into the young women's lives, examine their drama and secrets, and discuss the grisly discovery of their bodies. In part two, we'll follow detectives as they launch a hunt for their killer and discuss how the investigators in the courts did or didn't punish those responsible. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. On October 19, 1931, two gurneys were wheeled into the glaring white lights of the L.A. County Morgue's operating theater. 
The contents of those gurneys made seasoned LAPD detective David Davidson flinch in horror. He took photos of the bodies as the coroner conducted his examination. On one gurney was the nude corpse of a dark-haired woman, her pale, mottled skin nearly translucent under the overhead lights. And next to her was another female, or at least the pieces of her. The corpse had been separated into three distinct portions. Her torso, with the head and arms still attached, her waist down to her knees, and her lower legs. These were the bodies of 32-year-old Agnes Ann Leroy and 24-year-old Hedvig Samuelson. They had been found brutally murdered just days before. By all evidence, it seemed to be a crime of passion, impulsive and grisly. Yet something puzzled the coroner deeply. If the murder was unplanned, how did they manage to cut the body so precisely he was able to stitch it back together? The answer would prove to be just as haunting as the bodies themselves. Agnes Ann Leroy and Hedvig Samuelson were inseparable. From the beginning, they felt as if it was them against the world. Anne had grown up in Oregon. She was whip-smart, decisive, and ambitious. She was the kind of person who insisted that she not only learn something, but master it. Anne trained to become a nurse in Portland, Oregon in 1925. There, she was married twice, but nothing really stuck. In 1929, after her second divorce, she left town and accepted a position at a hospital in Juneau, Alaska. That's when she met Sammy. Hedvig Samuelson, or Sammy, was an attractive girl with a short brunette bob and a bright smile. Everyone knew Sammy best for her sparkling personality. She was outgoing, witty, and adventurous with a great sense of humor. Sammy moved to Juneau to take a job as a school teacher, leaving everything she'd known behind. When they met, Sammy was nearly 10 years younger than Anne. Yet, Anne saw herself in the young girl, and they quickly hit it off. In Alaska, where both women were so far from home, they became each other's family. They cooked for one another and confided in each other. They were practically attached at the hip. But their relationship went deeper than just convenience. Whatever one needed, the other one was always there to provide. Sammy and Ann took care of each other at any cost, but fate would put their devotion to the test. Sammy fell ill with tuberculosis. She was plagued with a horrible cough that left her handkerchiefs spotted with blood. She lost her appetite and she lost weight. Eventually, the fatigue was so debilitating she could hardly work. At the time, TB was incredibly common, and some patients only suffered mild symptoms. However, a bad case could ruin a person's health or even kill them. But no matter what she had to do or where they had to go, Anne was determined to stay by Sammy's side. (coughs) Oh, you poor thing. Here, take a sip of water. Oh, God. Anne, look. There's more blood now. I swear, since I saw that doctor, it's only gotten worse. It's the weather. Alaska's too cold and wet for your lungs. You know, you can't stay here long. I'm not moving to the godforsaken desert alone. Who said you were going alone? Wait, do you mean... Are you... Are you coming with me? You didn't think you were getting rid of me that easy, did you? Oh, Anne! 
Thank you, thank you. With that, the two women quit their jobs and took to the road, leaving the cold, wet climate of Alaska behind. They traveled south, looking to make their new home somewhere dry and warm for the sake of Sammy's health. Eventually, they set their sights on the deserts of Arizona, specifically Phoenix. In the early 1930s, Phoenix was a popular destination for people suffering from tuberculosis, largely because doctors recommended desert climates to dry out the disease. Phoenix's arid weather attracted droves of TB patients, or as the locals called them, lungers. But when Sammy and Anne arrived, they found Phoenix was more than just a retreat for lungers. It was a city on the rise. Phoenix was historically a conservative, traditional community made up of homes, churches, and schools, a place with a strict moral code where anything taboo was swiftly swept under the rug. But in the early 30s, an influx of wealth had changed its small-town culture. Underneath the wholesome facade, political corruption and prostitution were burgeoning, and the city's network of good old boys, doctors, lawyers, businessmen, and politicians ran both the town proper and its seedy underbelly. As two young, single women in a city where they didn't know a soul, Sammy and Anne soon discovered that their place was in its unsavory social scene. Soon after arriving, Anne and Sammy moved into a bungalow at 2929 North 2nd Street, just outside of downtown. Sammy was still too weak from tuberculosis to work, so she lived off of the savings she had from teaching. In the meantime, Anne found a job and became their little household sole breadwinner. Anne took a position as an x-ray technician at the local Louis Grunow Memorial Clinic. Right away, she met a kindred spirit, a woman who would expand Anne and Sammy's inseparable duo into a trio, 26-year-old Winnie Ruth Judd. Winnie, or Ruth as she was known, was the medical secretary at the clinic. She was a beautiful girl, petite with large, intense eyes and dark blonde hair that she styled in a bob of perfect finger wave curls. But while Ruth was visually striking, Anne was immediately taken by how sweet she was. Ruth was kind and cheerful, but a tad shy. She was a Midwestern girl, a minister's daughter from Indiana. Like Sam and Anne, she had moved to Arizona to treat her lifelong tuberculosis, but unlike them, Ruth was married. Ruth's husband was 22 years older, a 47-year-old physician named Dr. William Judd. Doc, as Ruth called him, lived in Mexico, where he worked as a medic at a silver mining company. It was unusual for a married couple to be living apart, let alone in different countries, but Ruth always explained that Doc had sent her ahead to Phoenix to treat her lungs while he looked for work in Arizona. As soon as he found a position, he promised that they'd be reunited. At least that's what Ruth told herself. The reality was that Doc was a drug addict. He was hooked on morphine and never able to hold down a job for long. For months, he'd failed to find work, and Ruth was quickly losing hope that they'd ever be together. So, for all intents and purposes, Ruth was a young woman in a new city struggling to make it on her own, just like Anne and Sammy. The three women became fast friends. Before long, Ruth was over at Sammy and Anne's most evenings. They'd cook dinners together, play cards, and spend cozy nights inside. 
crowded around the radio listening to dramas and spooky mysteries. <laughs> oh, Sammy, you fraidy cat. You should have seen your face. <laughs> oh, shut up. I hate these horror shows you make us listen to. I'm not going to be able to sleep a wink. I'll be staring at the closet all night. <laughs> oh, don't worry. I'll protect you from the wolf man. I'll stand guard at the door with a frying pan. <laughs> well, at least someone cares about my peace of mind. We ought to have you stay over more often, Ruth. I'd sure like that. It's a bit strange sleeping at my apartment alone. I bet. You know, Sammy and I were talking, and, well, you're over here most nights. Hell, you practically live here already. So we were thinking, why not make it official? Wait, you... you want me to move in? Will you? We know the place is small and all, but we figure rent would be mighty cheap with the three of us. And we love having you here. Just think, all us girls under one roof. It could be card games and dessert every night. What do you say? Yes! Oh, I'd love to! Jeez, I've never lived with anyone but Doc before. Well, welcome to the girls' house, sugar. We're gonna paint this town red! In May of 1931, Ruth moved into the bungalow on North 2nd Street with Anne and Sammy. A household of mostly single, working young women was practically unheard of at the time. And for that reason, they stuck out. Everyone who knew them loved Anne, Sammy, and Ruth. Before long, they became well-known around town as simply the girls. Compared to the more traditional community of Phoenix, they were modern women. They smoked, drank booze in the era of prohibition, and loved to entertain. They'd have other nurses from the clinics over to the bungalow, and even the doctors. Before long, the girls' house became a favorite spot for local influential men looking to cut loose away from the prying eyes of their morally upright neighbors. But of all the distinguished guests the girls would eventually host, perhaps the most notable was a man named Jack Halloran. 44-year-old Jack Halloran, or Happy Jack, as he was known to his friends, was a mover and shaker in Phoenix. He was a successful businessman, the owner of a local lumber company in town, as well as a member of the city's Chamber of Commerce. Jack was a prominent figure in Phoenix's upper crust, the kind of man with an upstanding reputation and a firm handshake who knew everyone's name at the town country club. But those who really knew Happy Jack also knew he was a playboy. Jack loved his booze almost as much as he loved his women. And women loved Jack. Though he was older and balding, he was tall, strikingly handsome, and almost always dressed in a sharp suit. What he lacked in youth, he made up for with charisma and a booming laugh that filled a room. But when he showed up at a party at the girl's house for the first time, Sammy and Ann were surprised to find that Ruth already knew Jack. Ann, Sammy, I'd like you to meet Jack. He's the one who brought that big jug of gin. Pleasure, ladies. I've been dying to meet the girls of Phoenix. You've been throwing all the best shindigs in town. Ruthie here's been telling me all about him. Pleasure is all ours, Mr... Halloran. Jack Halloran. But you can call me Happy Jack. All my friends do. Well, Jack, my apologies. If I knew Ruth was hiding such a tall glass of water, I'd have invited you sooner. (laughs) 
Well, I'm sure you'll be seeing plenty more of me. With a room full of this many gorgeous dames, you'll have to barricade the door. <laughs> <laughs> well, ladies, please excuse me. As much as I like mixing business with pleasure, I have clients to entertain. Ruthie, huh? Oh, hush. He's just a friend. But what'd you think? He's grand, right? If I knew a man like that, I think we'd be more than friends. But I've got a feeling you already are, you little minx. Though Ruth denied it, both Anne and Sammy knew that she was having an affair with Jack Halloran. But this made little difference to the other two women. Jack was handsome and rich to boot, and all three began vying for his attention. And though their similarities as young modern women brought them together, their mutual obsession with a married man would soon tear them apart. When we return, the girls weave a twisted web of sex, jealousy, and deceit. And now, back to the story. By 1931, 32-year-old Agnes Ann Leroy and 24-year-old Sammy Samuelson had started their new life in Phoenix, Arizona, and met the third part of their trio, 26-year-old Ruth Judd. The young women quickly converted their tiny bungalow into a regular party location where they'd entertain a host of influential men behind closed doors. But when Sammy and Ann met Ruth's married lover, 44-year-old Jack Halloran, everything changed. Jack and his friends soon became regulars at the girls' house, and they blended right in with the other prominent men who frequented their parties. They were lawyers, doctors, politicians, almost always older and almost always married. The girls didn't mind. Their guests were generous, lavishing them with bootleg booze and expensive gifts. But no matter who came through their front door, the three women were always focused on Jack. And much to Ruth's displeasure, Jack wasn't shy about returning their affections. Happy Jack, you handsome devil. Welcome back. I'm delighted you came. Oh, well, I'm glad to see you, doll. Oh, and don't you look like the cat's meow. You're incorrigible, Mr. Halloran. But lucky for you, I'm a fool for flattery. <laughs> <laughs> Ruth would watch on, feeling helpless as Jack blatantly flirted with Sammy and Anne. Ruth's affair with Jack had gone on for nearly a year, and in that time, she'd grown more than just attached. Even though Jack was married with a family, Ruth loved him and her own marriage to the much older Doc had been on the rocks for some time. Doc's morphine addiction paired with his inability to hold down a job had kept them apart, both emotionally and physically. Until he found work in Arizona, Ruth was forced to live without him in Phoenix. And she was lonely, but Jack had cured her loneliness. And for that, she thought the world of him. Yet Jack's flirtations with Sammy and Anne began to reveal that perhaps he didn't feel the same way. The more time went on, the more devastated Ruth became. And all the while, her suspicions about Jack's involvement with Sammy and Anne grew. You're late. Again. I've been in this dingy motel for three hours. Uh, I'm sorry, Ruthie. I had to stay longer. The old lady's getting suspicious. Well, so am I. What do you mean? Well, you've you've been late for the last few weeks, and I'm just sick of it. All right, all right. 
This is about the girls, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. I've watched you cozy up to them, and I can't stand it anymore. Oh, it's just harmless flirting. That's it. I just think that pair's a hoot. Why don't I believe that's all it is? Listen, I'll be honest with you. I slip them some cash from time to time just to help them with the bills. Sammy's lungs and all, I know they need it. No strings attached? Not a thread. I've only got eyes for you, kid. You promise? Scout's honor, mother's grave, the whole shebang. But while Ruth tried her best to believe Jack, deep down she knew there was more he wasn't telling her. As her suspicions grew, so did tensions between her, Sammy, and Anne. And soon their friendship began to sour. Evenings at home were punctuated by passive-aggressive comments, then vicious arguments, until one night, it all boiled over. What happened to the old Victrola? That thing was a piece of junk, so we got a new one. How? This has got to be worth at least $75. It's not really any of your business what we do with our money, is it? Well, I don't think that's your money you're spending. What are you implying, Ruth? You know exactly what. Jack's been giving you cash out of the goodness of his heart, and I think you're taking advantage of him. Oh, that's fresh. Believe me, Jack's getting plenty of bang for his buck. What are you saying? Ugh! Stop with the denial. For God's sake, you're his mistress, Ruth. Did you really think you were the only one? But he told me... Doll, that man's a cad. I know you are in love with him, but you've got to be off your rocker if you think he feels the same. He does love me, and... You're just a couple of tramps using him for his money. Well, at least I'm no one's wife, but you are. Oh, you better shut your mouth. You may act all high and mighty, the little minister's daughter from Indiana, but face it, Ruth, you're just a homewrecker. <sighs> Ruth, I think it'd be better for all of us if you got your own apartment. But, but where will I go? Ruth moved out of Sammy and Ann's bungalow in late September of 1931. When asked by friends, each woman claimed the split happened over petty arguments about housekeeping and the like. None of them wanted to admit the love triangle. On October 2nd, 1931, Sammy wrote to her parents, Ruth Judd, the girl that was staying with us, moved so we're alone again and we like it so much better. Three never get along very well. But though they tried to play it off as a simple dispute among friends, everyone knew the girls got in an argument over Jack Halloran. And Jack himself couldn't have cared less. With Ruth no longer living at the bungalow, he was free to see all three women as much as he liked. And meanwhile, Sammy and Anne played the married scoundrel for all he was worth. God almighty, I think you girls have ruined me. <laughs> think? Why don't we give it another go, just to be sure? Oh, Sammy, Jack's got to get home. We couldn't possibly keep him here for very much longer. I think I could be persuaded. No, I think Anne's right. Unless, of course, you could persuade us otherwise. Hmm. How much are we talking? Oh, please, Jack. This isn't a cat house. How about rent? This month's the next. Jesus! You trying to rob me? Like we said. We wouldn't want to keep you for too long. Mrs. Halloran could get worried. You know I don't like it when you talk about my wife. 
And we don't like it when you expect us to keep secrets without holding up your end of our understanding. All right, fine. This month's, next month's, take it. Thanks a bundle, Jack. Let's be clear. This is the last time you make veiled threats. I know a lot of important people in this town, and you got zilch. I could ruin you both with a single phone call. Don't forget that. As the weeks passed, Anne and Sammy's relationship with Jack only got more complicated. But their friendship with Ruth began to heal. Because they ran in the same social circles, the girls bumped into each other often. Every time they did, they played it cool, hugging and greeting each other with a degree of feigned enthusiasm for everyone else's benefit. But soon, at work at the medical clinic, Anne and Ruth started talking on friendlier terms. Ruth, it seemed, had made some level of peace with the fact that Jack was hanging around other women, and she continued seeing him regardless. And though tensions may have lingered under the surface, Anne was determined to smooth over the rift between them. After all, they were three women on their own, trying to scrape by. Like Jack said, they had zilch, but at least they could have each other. So on Friday, October 16th, while working at the clinic, Anne invited Ruth to the bungalow for supper. So, I know you said you were busy tonight. Anne. Hear me out. Evelyn's coming over to play bridge. And if you're there, we can do a four-handed game. That sounds lovely, but I'm behind on typing these reports. I don't think I better go. I know, I know, but we're having pork chops and creamed salmon and scalloped potatoes. I know you can't turn down my scalloped potatoes. You drive a hard bargain. Please, Ruth. It'll be like old times. Sammy misses you. I miss you. <sighs> All right. If I get through in time, I'll come over and play bridge. Wonderful. I'll make a double batch of potatoes just in case. See ya, doll. Though it was true that Ruth needed to work late, what she didn't tell Anne was that she had plans to spend the night with Jack. But some things were better off unsaid. That evening, Anne left the clinic around 5 p.m. and got a ride home with one of the clinic's doctors. Ruth slipped out around 6. Anne prepared dinner for herself, Sammy, and another nurse named Evelyn Nace at the bungalow, while Ruth waited for Jack at her apartment. The hours ticked by. Anne, Sammy, and Evelyn laughed over their dinner of pork chops and potatoes. Meanwhile, Ruth sat alone in her apartment, watching out the window for Jack's gray Packard to pull up. But around 9 p.m., he was still a no-show. Ruth's mind was racing, thinking about where he could be. Her heart beat fast. Jealous thoughts began to spiral. Finally, she decided... If Jack did come over, she wouldn't be home. So she grabbed her coat, walked out the door, and took the short trolley ride over to Sammy and Anne's. Around 9.30 p.m., Evelyn left early. Anne and Sammy walked her to the front door and wished her a good night. Just minutes later, Ruth walked in through the back. Anne! Sammy! Is that Ruth? Sure is. I wrapped up my work earlier than I expected. Oh, Ruth! We thought you wouldn't come. Well, I'm here now, but I suspect I've taken the last trolley of the night. You mind if I sleep over? Of course not. We'll fetch you some pajamas, just like old times. Yeah, just like old times. That night, the girls talked, laughed, and gossiped. 
It seemed as though things were back to how they'd always been. But in the morning, nothing would ever be the same again. Coming up, Anne and Sammy meet their grisly fate. Now, back to the story. In 1931, the friendship between 32-year-old Agnes Ann Leroy, 24-year-old Hedvig Sammy Samuelson, and 26-year-old Ruth Judd was torn apart when they all fell for the same man, 44-year-old Happy Jack Halloran. But on October 16, 1931, Anne and Sammy invited Ruth over in an attempt to heal their rift. They talked, laughed, and Ruth spent the night. It was just like old times, but it wouldn't last. Before 11 p.m. that night, Jenny McGrath, the girl's next-door neighbor, was sleeping on her home's enclosed porch when she woke up to the sound of gunshots. (gasps) Oh, dear God! Jesus, Joseph and Mary, what in the world is going on out there? But when Jenny got up to investigate... Not a thing was amiss in the bungalow next door. No screaming, no robbers. Not even a single light was on, so she went back to bed. But the inexplicable gunshots weren't the only bizarre occurrence that night. Around 11 p.m., Dr. R.B. Rainey, who lived across the street, was returning home from a night out with friends for his birthday. At the time, he noticed two cars parked in the girl's driveway. That wasn't unusual considering Anne and Sammy often had guests. Not long after, Rainey was called into the hospital for an emergency surgery. But when he returned home around 1 a.m., he saw something peculiar. A Packard, a large luxury car, was leaving the house with its headlights turned off. Neighbors besides Rainey had also spotted an unfamiliar vehicle parked at the house. And though the girls had plenty of parties at their place, A car leaving their house at 1 a.m. without headlights was unusual. And the fact that the driver had chosen to drive without their headlights struck Rainey as odd. But it would be days until he thought about that detail again. The next morning, on Saturday, October 17, 1931, both Anne and Ruth were due to work at the Louis Grunau Memorial Clinic. But neither woman showed up for the job. Not much later, Mrs. Ernest Smith, the clinic's receptionist, received an apologetic call from Ruth, explaining that she would be arriving a bit late that morning. Then, just minutes after, she got another call. Good morning, Louis Grunau Memorial Clinic. Oh, Anne! Hardly recognized you. Do you have a cold? On the other end of the line, Anne informed Mrs. Smith that she wouldn't be coming in. Instead... She was on her way to Tucson for a last-minute weekend getaway. Well, you're already late, and I know Dr. Baldwin isn't going to be happy with this last-minute change to his staff. (laughs) That may be true, but I think it's best if you tell him yourself. Uh, Let me get him on the line. What are you thinking, Anne? We have full books today, and I need my tech. (laughs) Well, frankly, I don't care if you're sorry. This behavior is simply unacceptable. And if you don't cancel your plans and show up today, you can find yourself a new position. Oh, women these days, I tell you, they insist on working and then you gotta beg them to do their jobs. Ugh, simply ridiculous. What's wrong, Mrs. Smith? I, I don't think that was Miss Leroy. The clinic never found out who was on the other end of the line, but Anne never came to work that day. 
or the next. It wasn't until three days after Anne and Sammy had last been seen that anyone would realize what happened to them. And by then, they were more than 300 miles away. On the morning of October 19, 1931, a night train from Phoenix to Los Angeles pulled into downtown Central Station. But this locomotive was carrying strange cargo. While the train traveled through the Arizona desert, the baggage man on board noticed a large black trunk emitting an awful smell, like rotting meat. The further they went on their journey, the worse it seemed to get. Before long, he realized what was inside. And as soon as they reached their final stop in L.A., he alerted the district baggage agent. Looks like one of our passengers might be transporting some contraband deer. Let me see. (coughs) Oh, that's meat all right. I can smell it from a mile away. Tell me about it. We've been hauling that thing through the desert for hours. Well, you're free now, son. I'll take it from here. At the time, California was experiencing a problem with passengers attempting to smuggle venison across state lines. So when the trunks arrived, along with another that smelled just as awful, the baggage agent simply tagged them with a pink slip and took them to the front office. There, he waited for the owners to retrieve their contraband property so he could give them a talking to. And before long, a man and a woman walked into the office. The agent asked them what exactly was in the trunks to cause such a gag-inducing smell. But the couple insisted it was nothing but personal items and clothing. And when the agent pressed them again, this time to open the trunks, the woman claimed her husband had the keys and she'd need to go telephone him. But once they walked out of the office, they never returned, leaving the mysterious, stinking luggage behind. Hours passed, and soon the baggage agent noticed a dark, sticky liquid seeping from the trunk seams. By the time he realized it, a small pool had already formed on the ground. At 4.30 p.m., he called the LAPD. Yes, hello. I'd like to report two suspicious pieces of luggage at Central Station. Well, uh, you see, the bags are bleeding. LAPD Detective Frank Ryan was nearing the end of his shift when he answered the strange call from Central Station. But when he arrived, he knew his day was far from over. Ryan was a 10-year veteran on the force who'd seen his fair share of gore. And he knew old blood when he saw it. But nothing could have prepared him for what was inside the dilapidated old trunks. As the baggage agent looked on, Detective Ryan attempted to pick the locks. Do you think you know what's inside, officer? I've got an idea, but I sure hope I'm wrong. Just have to get this damn lock to budge. There she goes. All right, let's have a look. Papers, books, ladies' clothing, an all-blood-stained boot. No surprise there. And a blanket. As Detective Ryan lifted away a blood-soaked quilt, he found a woman's face staring back at him. He was so shocked, he instinctively jumped back, and the trunk's lid slammed shut. It took him some time to recover his composure, but when he did, he found that the corpse of a woman had been stuffed inside. She'd been laid on her side with her knees drawn to her chest, almost as if she was in the fetal position, She had dark hair, was wearing pink pajamas, 
and had been shot once through the head. Detective Ryan had just uncovered the body of 32-year-old Anne Leroy. But that wasn't all. Inside the trunk with Anne were severed limbs from another woman. He'd had a horrifying feeling that the second smaller trunk contained the rest of the body. As soon as he opened it, his worst suspicions were confirmed. Inside, Ryan found the lower leg and upper torso of 24-year-old Sammy Samuelson. Like Anne, she was wearing pink pajamas and had been shot through the head, as well as the chest and shoulder and left hand. Detective Ryan immediately called headquarters and requested backup. He needed forensics to dust for prints, along with the coroner, Stat. Soon, a whole team flocked to Central Station, but they'd find not much detective work was necessary. Every piece of vital evidence was contained within the luggage itself. The killer had practically handed them their case with a bow on top. Inside, they found the murder weapon, a 25 caliber pistol, the bullet shells, and a set of bloody surgical tools, which the authorities assumed were used to dismember Sammy's body. But in another tragic touch, the killer had added personal items belonging to the victims as well. Scattered on top of Anne and Sammy's mangled corpses were blood-smeared photographs of the smiling women captured in happier times. Even Christmas cards from family and school diplomas had been thrown into the mix. It took no time at all for the police to identify the bodies. Soon after that, they had a suspect. Lucky for them, plenty of eyewitnesses in Phoenix and Los Angeles had seen the trunk's owner. Could you describe that again for me? I missed that last part. Oh, um, slender build? Yeah, yeah. And then what else? Well, um, thick hair, slim legs, and rather pleasant, honestly. That's what makes this so shocking to me. That's what shocks you? Well, it was just, she was just a slip of a thing. And pretty, too. It's hard to believe, you know? Well, I tell you, she may be pretty, but that woman's capable of some of the ugliest things I've ever seen. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of Agnes Leroy and Hedvig Samuelson's case. We'll see how the gruesome tale of the infamous trunk murders gripped the nation and became one of the most sensational true crime stories of the 1930s. For more information on the trunk murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found the trunk murderess by Jana Boomersbach extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Solved Murders for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Solved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time... Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. 
This episode of Solve Murders was written by Alex Garland, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Rebecca Thomas, Kimlin Tran, Jen Wong, and Dan Velasquez. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 